0: There is a battle for the Word of God as never before. It is certainly nothing new, but its intensity has been uh, just ratcheting up, ramping up. Voltaire, the famous French philosopher, historian, from that Louis XIV era, said this, nothing can be more contrary to religion than reason... And common sense. One of the early women's liberationists, Elizabeth Stanton, said the Bible and the church have been the greatest stumbling block in the way of women's emancipation. Clarence Darrow, who uh, was the uh, who litigated the famous Scopes trial in the 1920s, uh, an advocate of uh, evolution and He was certainly a Bible mocker. He said, the "The origin of absurd idea of immortal life is easy to discover. It's kept alive by hope and fear, by childish faith and by cowardice. Rosie O'Donnell, famous TV personality and avowed radical liberal, said recently on The View, Christianity is just as threatening as radical Islam in a country like America, where we have separation of church and state. And so the question I asked this morning is, Christianity, as it says here, kept alive by hope and fear? Is it childish and cowardice? Is Christianity threatening to the intellectual powers of people? Is it for the uneducated? Is it a book of lies? Does the Bible take people back into the dark ages? Is it just a fable? These are all the questions that often ring in the minds of people today. Growing up, uh, we tried to uh, have Bible time with our children, and uh, we were able to successfully do that uh, several days a week. One of the things we did in our family Bible time was to have a doctrinal drill. In this doctrinal drill, we would uh, uh, say some things and uh, like we would say, uh, is Jesus God? Yes, Jesus is God in the flesh. And so we would ask the question, they would repeat back. One of the questions that uh, we would ask is, is the Bible true? And the children would say, Yes, every word is true. And then uh, Lynette would oftentimes say, okay, hold, uh, hug your Bible, and uh, now hug the Bible. And uh, even today, I think in toddlers, uh, they still do the same thing. They encourage the children, love your Bible. Is the Bible true? Yes, every word is true. And so they grew up with that kind of a mindset. One day, our youngest daughter, Abigail, who's now a beautiful young lady of 21 or two or something, um, she was 10 at that time, and we were driving down the road, and um, something dawned on her all of a sudden, just like a bright light. Dad. Now, typical our conversations didn't go well, not because we uh, didn't love each other, it's just that I kind of take my time to answer. You know, I think about the moment and I try to get an answer together. By that time, she's already asked me five more questions. And uh, so anyway, but uh, she said, Dad, how do we know we're right? She drove by a, we drove by like a temple or something, a religious temple. How do we know we're Right all of a sudden it just dawned on her. I mean, I've been hearing this all my life. I've been drilled into my head. But how do we know we are telling the truth? And I said, well, Abby, you just actually asked one of the most wise questions. You can't just take somebody's word for it just because they're an authority, although we certainly should be respectful. But just because somebody sounds smart or just because it says professor or they're up there at a, a lectern or whatever, you can't just accept what they say. Thankfully, there's something we can all go to that does give us the answer. And it's not just oral tradition. It's not power or influence or how big of whatever they are speaking from or How many degrees behind their name? No, it comes from the Word of God, a written contract that has not changed in all the years. In fact, Jesus said that not even a dot has passed away, not even one little dot has passed away from the Word of God. It was given by the mind of God, it was given to the mind of man and then came through his hands. It is a sure word. My uh, Pastor Luke and you'll be proud of Pastor Luke. He was, had the privilege of speaking down here last night at the veterans' uh, little get-together there as they honored uh, people who uh, sacrificed in Pearl Harbor, and uh, he spoke uh, about sacrifice. And of course, the greatest sacrifice of all was Jesus Christ, but um, I was telling uh, Pastor Luke, that uh, his grandpa, my dad, uh, right after Pearl Harbor, in fact, it was Pearl Harbor that got him into the Navy. He was a backwoods boy in dusty hills of Montana. He's 18 years old, and then when that unprovoked, cowardly attack happened on American soil, that was all it wrote for him. He said, "We'm going to do something." He enlisted, went into the Navy. After he got out of the Navy, he uh, uh, married my mom, ended up getting born again, and uh, went to Bible college, um, Bible Institute of Los Angeles. There he came back and he began to be a church planter. And over the years, my dad would say different things. And there are a few times in my life where I remember something so specifically that he gave me from the Bible. This is one of them. I don't know if I was doubting the Word of God or I was wondering about things, but uh, he said, let me give you, Tim, probably the greatest passage on the f- how we get the Bible, why it's an authority, how it's given to us. And so he took me to the passage we're going to talk about this morning. And so not only is this one of my most favorite subjects in the world, uh, talking about the Word of God, but this means a lot to me because this passage, I think, settles it, a more sure word. Are you sure? Sometimes when we want to know something, we'll say, are you sure? They'll say, yep, I'm sure. And then if we really want to make sure because we don't want any mistakes, we say, are you sure you're sure? Yes, I'm sure. I'm sure. And so this morning, when we're dealing with the topic, heaven and hell, I don't want you just to be sure. I want you to be sure you are sure that yes, how do we know we're right? Thank God we have the Bible. Let's bow for prayer. Father, I thank you for this opportunity, giving us a sure word, not a maybe word, not a a 99% word, Lord, but a sure word, an absolute guarantee written down for mankind. I pray the Lord, our people will get this today. Help us to get it, Lord. Help us to get it, Holy Spirit. Only you can do that. Only so much my words can do. You're going to have to do it all. In Jesus' name, Amen. First Peter is addressed to these beloved saints of God. It's a pastoral epistle given by, yes, Simon Peter, that one who blew it big time, but God allows for mulligans. Amen. That's what I always tell golfers. And uh, so here he was. He is now an apostle of all things. <laughs> And he's warning people. He said, if you are going to be sure you're sure, first of all, you got to be saved. And then he says, you've got to know that you have an infallible, inerrant source document because there's no other way to know if what's being said is truth or error. And so two major points this morning, and that is the peril of misunderstanding scripture, as he's going to talk about. And then second of all, the um, the beautiful power of understanding Scripture. All right, we can see first of all in this passage that there are three clear and present dangers. First of all, there is the danger of distortion. Let's go to First Peter, excuse me, Second Peter, chapter one, and verse sixteen. All right, Second uh, Peter one and verse sixteen. Put that up there. All right, let's all read this together. Ready? Out loud. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were witnesses of his majesty, eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter said, Now I know people are accusing me of distorting truth, because we all know that Zeus is the main God. <laughs> We all know that Venus, you know, is there in all these plurality of gods. They're accusing me of distorting the truth of paganism. He said, Christianity is not a distortion, and it is certainly not a fable. The Greek word there is mythos, which we get our word myth from. It's not a myth. Christianity is not a myth. It's not a fairy tale and furthermore he said it certainly is not cunningly devised notice that phrase they were he was being accused of having an ulterior motive paul was apparently trying to line his pockets according to them right he was beaten how many times shit wrecked uh, he was left for dead all because he was just after money yeah right i think about the first time someone beat me over the head 20 times with a club. If I was after money, I'd say, I'm not in this anymore. I'm just really not into this God stuff. But look at uh, chapter 3 and verse 12. Let me tell you what the issue is, first of all, in here in verse number 16. What was the real issue? It was was Christianity in the whole, but in particular, it's about the second coming. It says, when we may note unto you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ... People are saying that's a myth. It's a cunningly devised fable. He said, I know people are saying that when I'm talking about the coming of the Lord, that it is a myth. He said it's not a myth in any way, shape, or form. In fact, he goes. if you want to move to chapter 3, verse 12, he said, We are looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God. We are looking for the second coming. I, uh, as my tradition is on Sunday morning, I always crank up the music, uh, much to Abigail's uh, great uh, excitement. And uh, I, uh, while she's sleeping, I wake her up. The music is full blast. Thankfully, we don't have any neighbors and windows are not always open. So, And I'm shouting, screaming. And this morning, the quartet was singing, it's coming, he's coming soon. It is a lot of fun to shout out, Jesus is coming today. He's coming today. And that's what he is saying here in chapter 3, verse 12, looking, hasting the coming of the Lord. Come quickly, Lord. But people are going to twist what I say. Let's go to verse 16 of the same, ver- uh, same chapter. Unlearned, uneducated, dumb people, <laughs> wackos, whack jobs, Unlearned, because they don't want to learn. Unlearned and unstable. By the way, those two things always go together. Always go together. When you find an unstable person, an instable person, that's because they're unlearned. That is, learned. they may be learned of the world's uh, stuff, but unlearned of Scripture. And so Paul said they don't know the Bible, they don't know anything about God. What they do know, it says they rest. See that word? W-R-E-S-T. That means twist. They twist scripture. They twist this concept of the coming of our Lord. They get it all mixed up. And boy, I tell you one thing, if you want to find out a whole bunch of craziness, just study eschatology, the study of future things. I mean, there are so many wacko things out there. You can get kind of a book. that hasn't changed in 2000 years. But notice what it says. They also twist other scriptures. It's to their own destruction and sadly to the destruction of others. Now, specifically in context, he's saying, and by the way, another proof of inspiration. Here, Peter is validating Paul as being a writer of scripture. The things that Paul has given us is scripture. It's from God. It's interesting how often the New Testament validates the New Testament as well as the Old Testament. That's why uh, we know the canon of uh, the books that we have are from God. He, he said, "Look, people are gonna—they are gonna twist Scripture." Now, how do you know when someone is twisting Scripture? There are four common characteristics of those who twist Scripture. How do you spot them? First of all, they have ulterior motives. Titus chapter one verse eleven says they subvert whole houses. That's the issue. It'd be one thing if it just. One person who's 90 years old, you know, gets crazy. And we've had a few people that were 90 get subverted. But the problem is it subverts whole houses. Now, by the way, when it says a house, it's not talking about just the people that live in that house. The word there means generations. Folks, error can be repeated generation after generation. Look, just look at Mormonism. Started in the 1850s and today. After all these generations, there are millions of people on their way to hell because of this twisting of Scripture. They have whole generations teaching things they ought not to teach. But what do they teach it for? For filthy lucre's sake. Since I've already made everybody who loves Mormonism bad, I might as well just stick on it for a second. Why do you think Joseph Smith did all that he did? for filthy lucre's sake. He was a carpetbagger and he was going around town to town with all of his women in each port and he was doing it for filthy lucre's sake. That doesn't mean that a minister can't have money. It doesn't mean a minister can't even be wealthy. By the way, always interesting how people define wealth. You know, if we lived in one country, uh, wealth might be having $100 and another, it might be something else. What he's talking about is dishonesty, filthy lucre. Filthy meaning dishonest. There's this guy running around today who's telling everybody, just a brand new book, this Christian author, pastor, megachurch saying, what you need to do is take the Lord's Supper every day. and If you'll take the Lord's Supper every day, you'll be healed your family will be healed, your life will be healed, everything. Oh my goodness. Why does he do that? Well, I'll tell you why he does it. For filthy lucre's sake. That's exactly why he, he wants to make millions on some books, some teaching. Crazy. So the Bible says when someone's out there, obviously for filthy lucre's sake, you can know they're going to twist scripture. Number two, there is another uh, common way you can spot them is that for a pretext, they make, a, they make a self-indulgence something that's even biblical, for example. They entice those who are immature and vulnerable. Second Peter chapter 2, Peter is warning people. They speak great swelling words, great swelling words. Oh, they sound so smart, but it's all vanity. It's empty. And they allure people to this teaching through the lust of the flesh through much wantonness you know when people get up uh, and assure you there's no consequences you can live any way you want you can smoke anything you can drink anything you can live any way you want any despite what kind of a disobedient a compromising life that it is you're good with god folks you can be sure that is twisting scripture there's a third time and that is they take scripture farther than they were tended to be applied If baptism's good, then we ought to baptize as early as possible. If we're going to baptize as early as possible, we can't be dunking these brand new babies, so let's sprinkle it. Because baptism, if it's good, it must be part of salvation. Grace is a great doctrine. It becomes an excuse for sin. Sovereignty is an amazing, awesome biblical truth. And then it becomes an excuse for inactivity. If it's sovereign, I don't have to do anything. There's a fourth time, and that is they set aside good biblical teaching by dispensationalizing it. That's a big old word with a lot of hinges in it there, but uh, dispensationalizing. That means present day values are different than those times. For example, Paul clearly taught that a past, that a woman had a complementarian position in the home and in church. And he said that they have a tremendous, a tremendous... Uh, Value and things that they can offer, but he said they just uh, I say and God says they cannot be pastors. That's just not meant for them. Well, people today say that Apostle Paul was a chauvinist and he was just giving in to the culture of his day. But that's and so they just put it was a different dispensation when God gives these wonderful, uh, amazing and clear and beautiful boundaries in the law. They say no, that's uh, for uh, that was a time under the law or legalism. Uh, of course, anything to get them off the hot seat. This is what we call a convenient church. The Bible truth is often distorted. I heard a, about a man who was, went to an old country church and he uh, went down to what they called the mourner's bench. And If you're an old timer, you may have heard that phrase, the mourner's bench. Sometimes old time churches had an altar where people would come and a, supposedly pray through to God. He came down to the altar and he said, oh God, save me. Oh God, save me. And he was waiting on a wonderful emotional experience. And so a man came over and knelt beside him and leaned up and whispered his inner. He said, mister, if you want to be saved, you've got to hold on. You've got to hold on. He said, I held on and I got saved. He said, all right. So it sounded like good advice. And he was thinking about holding on when another person kneeled next to him and said, Brother, if you want to be saved, you got to let go. I let go, and God saved me. He was thinking, all right, do I hold on or do I let go? About that time, a dear sister came up and knelt down next to him and said, Brother, if you want to be saved, you got to look up. I looked up to God and I saw a light. He thought, oh my goodness, hold on, let go, look up. And about that time, another person came alongside and they said, what you got to do is get down. If you get down on your face before God, you'll be saved. He said, he was given a testimony. He said, thank God, God did save me. But he said, honestly, I almost didn't make it. He said, I was, by the time I was holding on, letting go, looking up and getting down, I almost didn't get saved. And that's, folks, what happens today. We have people telling everybody something else to be saved. The fact is, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. That's Scripture. I can go to that one, and I can stand on that. And if you're not careful, someone is going to distort the Word of God. That is the peril of misunderstanding Scripture. The second peril is that of distraction. An emphasis on experiencing the Lord. Uh, about uh, experience rather than the Lord of the experience. Verse 16, "'For we have not followed cunningly devised fables "'when we made known unto you the power "'and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, "'but were eyewitnesses of His majesty.'" What? An eyewitness of His majesty. What are you talking about? Peter said, "'Yep, you will not believe what happened to me.'" I was an eyewitness of His majesty. Now, if anybody had a right to be distracted, Peter would. You talk about an experience. He goes on to talk about it. Verse 17, for he received from God the Father honor and glory. In fact, when there came a voice to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Notice Peter is saying we. And so whoever was with him, we know from another passage who that was but he's saying we had this experience well we have a little tip off here of when it was it says it was when god the father spoke the words this is my beloved son in whom i am well pleased now we know from the gospels that happened three times first of all it happened at his baptism The second time that it happened, it was at the Passion Week when he was on the cross. And the father said, this is my beloved son, which I am well pleased. But when Peter was referring to, it was not those two times. First of all, he wasn't there at baptism. And we also know that he wasn't there at the cross because he had already fled. Look at verse 18. And we know now what he's talking about. And this voice which he came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. Luke chapter 9 and other synoptic gospels tell about it. This is the mount of what's called transfiguration, which is the Greek word metamorphized. That means he was absolutely before their eyes turned from a, a worm to a butterfly, metamorphosis. He was turned into this, wow. In fact, the Bible says he shone so brightly, not like the sun on a person, but like radiating from the inside. In fact, so much so, the description is that you could see sort of his clothing, but it was like shining through. It was like he was this dynamo, this this sun in in a body that was just proclaimed was coming through. But not only that, that was amazing enough. Then Moses showed up, the giver of the law. Then of all things, Elijah shows up, the proclaimer of the law. Peter said, Look, you want to talk about a miracle. I was part of a miracle. But he said, "It's if I'm not careful, it can distract us from the precious word of God. And so often people find themselves distracted by being a part of or listening to or hearing about miracles. One Christian author listed in a book on biblical discernment about some of these experiences he's read about, and here are some actual testimonies from people. One person said their puppy was raised from the dead. Another person's washing machine was healed. Another lady reported she got a new belly button. One person went to heaven and came back, and another had their dog uh, learn to praise the Lord in an unknown bark. (laughs) Those are all literal testimonies. Now, look, folks, the fact is God can do anything he wants. And I am a firm believer that God is still a God of miracles. But God never takes Jesus off of the center stage to to show us a miracle. Do you know what the uh, 2019 uh, uh, Word of the Year is? Did you read that? I noticed it came out this week. The 2019 uh, uh, Word of the Year, every year they have different ones, you know, and oftentimes every time I hear them, I think, yeah, that's really true. This one I went, what? (laughs) But the word in 2019 is the word existential. Existential. Now, it's not a word most of us use. I don't think I've used it one time, but the media has used it nonstop, and they especially use it regarding our president, President Trump. The idea is that an existential threat, for example, means it's not a real threat. That is, it's not actually happening. We just think it's going to happen, but it's so real it's going to happen. It's an existential threat. Anyway, that's the way they use it typically. Did you know that there is an existential theologian, and it's especially true when they come to the Bible. They say, the Bible is good because it has, there's power in it, but it's only good if it's good for you, because it's not good for me. It's good for you, but it's not good for me. <laughs> it's an existential um, book. It's If you experience good from it, it's good. It's These crazy kind of concepts that people come up with, the folks, I will tell you, the fact is the Bible is true whether you feel like it's true or not. Whether you have an experience with it, whether I have an experience with it, God's true is very true. Someone said, well, I know I'm saved because I feel it. Well, uh, I'm glad that you feel it because sometimes, but sometimes I don't feel it. I'm glad you feel like you're saved. There are times when honestly, I don't know if I'm saved or what I am. The other day, I, um, I told my wife, I said, I, I got to quit eating that uh, KFC at night. Um, you got to eat it in the morning, but no. Um, we ha- I had this big old greasy bit of chicken and had some, some uh, greasy French fries with it. And I'm telling you, what about midnight? You talk about seeing visions and dreaming dreams. Oh, my goodness, dear Lord. I saw I saw the big chicken and I saw all kinds of little green men coming at me and I mean it was terrible. Did I think I was saved right then? I didn't know what I was. But I'll tell you one thing. You know what? I'm telling you, if you're not careful, your indigestion will create a whole new Bible doctrine in your mind. The fact is, you better get into the book, not into your chicken. All right. The peril of misunderstanding in scripture, number one is distortion, number two, distraction. Base your experiences on the Bible, not because you ate something. And number three, discouragement. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. Man, I had a mountaintop experience. Now we do know from the gospels that that was Peter and James that was, uh, and uh, John that were together. And they saw Jesus transfigured into this amazing thing. It was absolutely incredible. Now, let's fast forward to Peter, James, and John telling Nathaniel and telling James the less and telling the other disciples, man, you should have been there. Telling Thomas, you know, I'm sure Thomas was going, but you should have seen it, guys. I mean, Jesus was on the mountain. They were explaining it, you know, just Now, if I was those other disciples, I'm always like, how come he gets all the visions? How come he gets to see Jesus? How come he was on the mount? I think that's what's typical in our minds because we um, often compare ourselves with other people's mountaintop experiences. And I feel like that's what's possible when people start talking about all these experiences they've, they've had. One of the best verses that have helped me to be careful about comparing is 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 12. and I think everybody compares themselves, one wife with another wife, one husband with another husband, fathers with fathers, mothers with mothers, business people, pastors, you name it, we all compare ourselves. Look into this verse, 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 12, we dare not make ourselves with a number or compare ourselves, don't compare ourselves with some that commend themselves, but they measuring themselves by themselves. Um, if you're going to measure yourself, measure yourself by Jesus, not by yourself, but anyway. And comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. Now, comparing ourselves has always been unwise, but I will tell you, this matter has gone into turbocharge with the advent of social media. Social media is an amazing tool. I mean, it is, and the internet uh, really, uh, the internet mainly more, but the social media is part of that. It is as to society what the printing press, when Gutenberg uh, created the printing press, I'm telling you, it changed everything. Now, mass-produced, people could have the Bible in their hand and other things in their hand. The internet did that for people, and social media in particular has heavily skewed the picture. Because everybody today shares... Their experiences, nearly everybody. But when they share, nobody shares the trash that's piled up in the kitchen. Nobody shares, you know, the other part. We always share the highlights of our day, which is a very narrow slice of reality. And oftentimes, people who view it feel deficient and discouraged because their life is not as beautiful or their accomplishments are not as good. And social media, with all its good, honestly, can be such a source of discouragement. And the same thing is true when people are talking about these mountaintop experiences with God. I uh, read a couple of quotes about Facebook you'll enjoy. Behind every successful student, there's a deactivated Facebook account. <laughs> Facebook is like a fridge. Every, even when you know there's nothing new going on, you still go and check it every 10 minutes. <laughs> uh, here's the last one. I don't always go to the gym, but when I do, I make sure Facebook knows about it. <laughs> there you go. And that is really the sense of Facebook. And I'm all for it when we're sharing little stories. But I'll tell you something, folks be careful not to compare yourself with others on Facebook, especially when it comes to the Christian world. God has made you a very unique uh, individual with God. And you have your own experiences. And don't compare yourself with anybody else. Number two, the, now we find the power of understanding Scripture. Verse 19, we have a more sure word. In fact, let's read this together, please. Ready out loud. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well that you take heed as a light unto shineth in the dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your heart. He said, Look, experiences are great, and I've had a real one. Now, Peter had a real one. My experiences may not be as real as his, but we know his is real because scripture validates it. It was amazing. But as amazing as it was, Peter said, that's not the surest words you can have. My word about that experience, however good, is nothing like the written word of God. Why? Because number one, there is a certainty in that. The power of the Bible is based on a word of prophecy. The Bible claims of itself that it is a word of prophecy, meaning that all the Bible has a prophetic tone to it. On every page, you'll find Jesus. John chapter 5, verse 39, Jesus said, search all the written scriptures. Remember now, when Jesus was talking, the only thing written was the Old Testament. Search the Scriptures. They are they which testify of me. When someone doesn't like the Old Testament, they're antichrist. Notice what that says. All the Old Testament testifies of me. When you say it's something for somebody else, not for us, and I've often reminded our people, yes, there are parts of the Old Testament that are not to us, but it's all for us. We can all learn something from it, even if we can put it in the right perspective. Notice what he says about all the written word, this prophetical sense. You do well that you take heed. (laughs) By the way, when someone says, you need to listen to this, you would do well to do what I'm saying, I think we ought to listen. If a billionaire told you, you should listen to me, you need to be a saver. You need to learn how to save. You need to learn how to have automatic withdrawals from your account so that it goes into a savings. Don't just count on when you have enough money. You need to listen to me. You, do, you will do well to think about this. When a billionaire says that, I think we ought to pay attention. Well, a greater than a billionaire said something. Here we have a man of God, God's man, saying, you need to be careful. Because um, scripture will help you understand when something doesn't pass the stink test. Notice what it says. As a light that shineth in a dark place. Scripture is a uh, and Jesus coming is a is a wonderful light. That's what he's saying here. There is a certainty, a light that comes. There is also a guarantee. Scripture is not only gives us certainty, but it gives us guarantee. (laughs) I told you before about the one person that came and they told one of our members several years ago now. It says, Your pastor preaches like everything he says is right. (laughs) He always acts like he's right. (laughs) Like, what else is the pastor supposed to say? He's supposed to get up there and talk about things that he doesn't think are true. I thought, what a crazy criticism is that? But anyway, there is a certainty from the word of God. Boy, he is certain about that. Amen. Why should we give up and give an uncertain trumpet sound? Man, if you're going to call the the war, make that trumpet sound out. Don't don't just uh, wimp out. There's a guarantee. Knowing this, knowing this, that there's a day star that's going to arise in your heart. Now, this uh, beautiful passage, by the way, that word day star comes from the Greek word phosphor, which we get uh, phosphorus, meaning this incredible, bright, one of the most bright colored lights there is, phosphorus burning. He's saying when the, when the phosphorus, this amazing light arises, now it's talking about the second coming, really, but it's meaning also here that the second coming of Christ is something that happens on the outside. But when, Jesus is, when you get saved and Jesus releases his light in you, that's the day star arising in you, and he's going to come, it says, the day is going to dawn when he's going to come, and it's going to be an amazing moment. It's going to be such a, 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 you have this guarantee that Jesus is coming, and how do you have that guarantee? Because he has been birthed in your heart. That feeling you have in your soul because Jesus is there, that wonderful light that comes, just imagine what it's going to be like when he comes again. There's a certainty There's a guarantee, written guarantee, and then there's a divinity. Sometimes we make a contract. We made a contract uh, the other day about a new sign that got wiped out. (laughs) We had so we got a new sign coming, but uh, before we signed, uh, before we uh, made all the agreements, we said write it down. It's kind of a lot of talking, but I said let's let's put it in writing. It's interesting how all the talking is one thing. When everybody starts writing it down, it's amazing how things start getting a little different. Have <laughs> you noticed that? And uh, writing it down, because we know when you write it down, you're going to be held to that. God wrote it down. It's a guarantee. And you can be sure that this day star is going to come and he's going to come in your life. And then not only is there a certainty and not only is there a guarantee, thank God there is a divinity about the Word of God, it is a divine origin. Verse 20, knowing this, there's that word knowing again. You can know this first. Before you know anything else, establish this first. No prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. The Bible did not come from human hands. Now the word private there actually is the word on its own or of itself. Now I believe we can use this verse to remind us that we should compare scripture, which is a very important part of biblical interpretation, hermeneutics. But actually, this verse is saying no scripture came of its own. The Bible didn't just, there wasn't just this big bang, spontaneous combustion, there was a Bible. It didn't work that way. It said it came not on its own. How did it come? The Bible just didn't appear verse 21. The prophecy, meaning all of the Bible is, has a prophetic sense to it. It's not meaning just anything that's predictive. All the Bible is prophetic. It's all uh, it comes from the mouth of God, verse 21. The prophecy came not in old time. By the way, it came in old time. If it's new time, it's not right time. These people have a church, I noticed, Latter-day. It's the church of Latter-day we got a latter-day revelation from God. Eh, Sorry. It came in old time. The book of Jude said, once delivered unto the saints, not a hundred times delivered, once delivered. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but by holy men of God, not sinless, just separated. That's what holy means, just separated unto God. Men, of God, I love that statement, a man of God, spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. The word moved is a nautical term. The idea is of putting your sails up and the wind blows into it. And you move as the wind blows. Very accurate description because we know who the author of the Holy Spirit, we know who the author of Scripture is. It is the Holy Ghost, as it says here. The Holy Spirit wrote scripture. By the way, that's why when we don't love scripture, we grieve the Holy Spirit. And when we grieve the Holy Spirit, we don't have his power. We don't have his closeness. We don't have him speaking in our ear. The Holy Spirit said, I wrote the book to you. Why don't you listen? People say, oh, I we don't need... The Bible is the letter of the law. I want the Spirit the Spirit wrote the letter, you ignoramus. <laughs> these people, these uh, spiritual antinomians that say, I don't want the Bible. I want something that has life in it. The Bible has life in it. My goodness, the Holy Spirit wrote it. And I, in fact, it's the exact opposite. If you, if you decline the Bible, you won't hear the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit wrote that and he gave it to us. These men of God hoisted their sails, were willing to be moved by the Holy Spirit. God blew into them. And isn't it appropriate that Peter, a sailor, would uh, write it? God would use a sailor to write that scripture there. I'm glad that we have a warranty. I'm glad that we have a guarantee. And I'm glad that it is based on divinity. The Bible comes from God, it is from the very hand of God. It is from him, these things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that you have eternal life. How many times has God said you can know it? Now, what have we talked about in these three weeks? And next week, we will finish this series with one more on this. But what have we learned so far? We've learned that the Bible is an incorruptible seed. It's an incorruptible seed, and it is the only seed by which we can be saved the seed of God and the Holy Spirit come together. We have, um, we have general revelation and then we have specific revelation. God revelates with the word and he illuminates with scripture. And then all of a sudden we get saved. We get saved by the word of God. Nobody can get saved by looking at a tree. Nobody can get saved by looking at the stars. You have to have the word of God. Romans 10 says that you have to have the word of God. How will they, how will they be saved unless there's a preacher of the Word? That's why when we ever tell someone about Jesus, give them the Word. The Word has power in it. Give them the Word. We learned uh, last week that uh, the Bible is inspired, it is inerrant, and it is infallible, the three Ns. And uh, just mark it down. I believe the Bible is inerrant. There's no errors in Scripture, and if there seems like an error, we just don't have all the facts yet. It is infallible. It is inspired. It is breathed by God. And then today we have a sure word, more sure than any experience, more sure than any feeling, more sure than any emotion. We have a sure word. We have the word of God written down. It's incredible. Has the day star written in your heart, risen in your heart? Have you had a sunrise of the soul? That's what he's talking about here. That's what happens when you accept that God's word is the Word of God. Here's what I would say. Every one of us need to sometime in their life say, I do believe. I testify, and I say to you, God, I believe that your Word, the Bible, is inspired, infallible, inerrant. It is from God. I believe every word. Every word is true. I close with this story. Kathleen Norris, an author, wrote about a South Dakota rancher and uh, his bride. They received a leather-bound Bible as a wedding gift from the groom's grandfather. This couple got a beautiful leather-bound Bible as a gift from the grandfather. They wrote a thank you note and stored the Bible away on a closet shelf, big beautiful family Bible, out of the way. As time passed, the grandfather repeatedly asked the couple, how did you like the Bible? We liked it. But he kept on. The rancher was actually getting confused about how to respond. I mean, hadn't he already expressed his appreciation? But the grandfather persisted. Eventually, the young man, a rancher, dug out his gift. He leafed through the bible just wondering if there's something the grandfather was meaning and as he leafed through it 20 dollar bills began to flutter out and fall to the ground 66 in all one at the beginning of each book in the bible yes there's something in that book and that young man found that out but the fact is if he if there was no 20 dollar bills on every page the fact is The Word of God is so rich. It is rich for that man's marriage and for his career, and it's rich for ours as well. The Word of God is powerfully rich. It is a sure Word. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed.